Did you ever wonder how some of the greatest people today become who they are? Most everyone has experienced that turning point in their life. It's these moments that forever changed who they were into whom they've become. Today on The Moment with Chris Epting, you'll hear from these people and hopefully be inspired to find your own life-changing moment. Now, here is your host, Chris Epting. Hey there, and thank you for joining me today on The Moment. You know, my guest today, it's funny, fans of, of Daryl Hall and John Oates and Todd Rundgren, it's sort of shared fan bases. Fans appreciate um, some of the connections, Philadelphia connections, certainly in the music, and certainly some of the more pop-inspired um, blue-eyed soul, <laughs> to coin a term or to use a term, uh, inspired pieces. And so uh, my guest today, John Willie Wilcox, sort of fuses those two fan bases because he played with, uh, with both of them, with both Daryl and John and Todd, of course, for a long time. But he's done a lot of other things as well. And I'm really happy to have him on today. Willie's a great storyteller, legendary drummer. Willie Wilcox, thanks for being here today, man. Hey, Chris. Great to talk to you this morning. Well, first of all, I always wonder, when did it become, your name was John Wilcox, when did it become Willie? I almost feel like that's your official name. Was there a point in your career where it sort of became that, that you remember, or did it just happen over time? Well, as a kid, I was John for quite a long time, and then Willie became my nickname. However, uh, the first record that I actually made, which was uh, War Babies with Hall & Oates, that was my first actual recording, I used the name John Wilcox, and that was the last time that I used John Wilcox as a recording artist, and I did it as a tribute to my dad because his name was John Arthur mm-hmm. Wilcox. So I wanted him to, you know, see his name in the, you know, the public space. And I, I used uh, John Wilcox for that record only. And then I went with Willie Wilcox because just Willie Wilcox is more fun to say. <laughs> Willie, you know, when you think back as a drummer, you you started early and you had an opportunity as a kid in upstate New York, up in Glens Falls. Uh, You you sent a photo to me recently of you at a clinic, I guess, that Max Roach was giving. Yeah, so um, back in the late 60s, there was a drum shop uh, owned by a man named Freddie Blood. And the crazy thing was, is that this was a small town. Glens Falls was what we called the Deadwood on the Hudson because <laughs> it was basically nothing there. It was a beautiful town um, in the Adirondack Mountains. It's about four hours from New York City. However, what was interesting about uh, Glens Falls is there was a restaurant there owned by a man named Tio Macero. Now, Tio was the producer of many of the Miles Davis records, so right. he was a legendary producer for people that know, you know, traditional jazz and Miles Davis's background. And he made some timeless recordings with Max. So he actually owned an Italian restaurant in Glens Falls called Maceros. And as a favor uh, to Tio, all the big bands would passing on their way to Montreal for for their gig, which was another three hours north of Glens Falls, they would stop over in Glens Falls for the night and they would play at Tio's restaurant. And it was a tiny little restaurant. So as a kid, as a 13-year-old kid, I got to go over and sit, you know, a chair away from watching Count Basie, Woody Herman, Max Roach, Duke Ellington, Gene Krupa. And, um, and, it, and that was my initial inspiration for drums was jazz. And so I had an incredible, you know, uh, upbringing in this very secluded town that you... The, the, the kind of upbringing that you would have if you lived in the middle of New York City, but I didn't. I lived. What a in, story! That's you know, incredible. I lived, I lived in, a, in a little, in a little tiny town, so I got to to see all these guys. And Max did a clinic at Freddie's drum shop. Came over, 
and we all got to meet him. We got to watch him play and and um, and get the autograph. And and, and late, one day there was a, a hotel in uh, Glens Falls called the Queensbury Hotel. Well, I went over and I stalked Max Roach. Got to say, <laughs> I got to say that I did, and I got his license plate number. <laughs> I still have the paper, license plate writ, written down, my notebook for all my musical um, notes and and ideas. It said Max Roach on it with a big stencil. I went over um, and I asked Max Roach how he played those brushes. He had a brush figure that he played with figure eights on the snare drum that that was amazing. So I went over, knocked on his hotel door, went upstairs, and and this beautiful uh, African-American woman named Abby Lincoln opened the door, which is Max's wife, and she's a very famous uh, 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 jazz singer. Singer, right. And so... Um, Max came to the door and I asked him about the brushes things and he signed my autograph and I went away as a happy little 13 year old kid. I was just mesmerized. Didn't you play with him much later in your life with Todd Rundgren and Utopia? There was a show you guys did out of Forest Hills Tennis Stadium, right? Where Santana performed as well. And was it Mac Max Roach playing that night? Yeah. So it was called Music Court. Right. I was there actually. Oh, you were? Yeah. Oh my God. That's and. and so um, on the bill was, as you said, well, there were many artists, Joe Cocker. Meatloaf. Yeah, it was a big Meat night. And Santana. It was fun watching Meatloaf play uh, tennis. That, that was probably the, <laughs> the highlight of my evening. But Well, there were tennis players, too. John McEnroe was there. I think Vitas Carolitis. It was all well, merging was, rock and roll and tennis. But I can still... I can still see the image of Meatloaf and John McEnroe elo- eloquently playing tennis. That was <laughs> in my mind. But... Um, getting back to, um, uh, you know, Santana, Santana uh, had played a song and we were doing two drums. And so um, Max was one of the drummers. and I was the other drummer. So I actually got to play the, the song with Carlos Santana, with uh, Max Roach, my idol and myself. And then we talked after the, the show and, you know, and I told him, I said, well, Max, you know, I, you know, I told him the story that I just shared with you. And he said, well, man, he said, you sound great. And, and, you know, it's great to see you again. And it was just, you know, a kind of, uh, you know, completing the circle. It was. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, if you would, let's bridge the gap a little. So you're playing as, as a youngster in upstate New York, eventually you make it to New York city. Um, you're, you're playing wherever you can. And you hear about at this point now, Jared Hall and John Oates, they're about to tour, I believe with the abandoned luncheonette album in 1973, they've recorded the album. It's come out. They're putting a new band together. How do you make your way into their band? Well, it's, it's imprinted into my, uh, my psyche. I remember very, very specifically at that time I was attending Manhattan school of music. I was in my third year, uh, studying, you know, music composition and theory and, and percussion and, uh, really wanting to be a jazz or a rock musician. But, you know, my mom and dad wanted to make sure that I went to college mm-hmm. and I had a friend, a very good friend. His name is Andrew Catarano and he lived in, um, and he still does in the Bronx in New York. And Andrew had heard about this this duo, these guys from Philly, Daryl Hall and John Oates. And he had a tape of She's Gone and a couple of other songs. And he said, hey, and of course, he called me John. He said, hey, John, he said, these guys are auditioning down at uh, Studio Instrument Rental. And he said, you should go try out. And he said, here's the tape. He said, I don't really want to do it, but you should check it out. So 
I listened to the music and I remember going down to studio instrument rental and there must have been 20 drummers and you, you know, everybody brought their cymbal bag and their favorite drum pedal and their stick bag. And you kind of just sat there in the, in, in the, you know, the, the cheering section while the other guys played and they, they must've gone through, I don't know, my recollection, recollection is about 20 guys and you got to listen to everybody play. And it was the wild west shootout and Daryl and John were up there, you know, with, uh, I think Fonts Galfan fan was already the bass player in the band and Daryl and John, uh, were there and they went through the tunes and you played the songs and, that would have been on my 21st birthday because the day of my 21st birthday, I got this call and it was John Oates. And he goes, Hey, uh, John, it's uh, John Oates. And I go, Hey, John, how you doing? He goes, great, man. He goes, I just want to let you know you got the gig. And I said, I did. And he goes, yeah. And I said, fantastic. I said, today's my birthday. And he goes, well, happy birthday. What day was that, Willie? What day is your birthday? Uh, September 21st. So the fall of 73. So Hall and Oates now, at this point, again, they're about to hit the road with, with a bit in lunch, which I think is just about to come out. And uh, what, do you remember what you played at the audition? What, what got you the gig? Like what songs you had to cover? Well, it would have been, you know, She's Gone for Sure was one of the songs. Right. Maybe um, Every Time I Look at You, the funky mm-hmm. song. Right, right. Um, and then uh, I can't remember. But, but what's, you've not been on the road before, right? This is going to be your first road trip out with the guys, right? Yep. This will be my first time, you know, playing kind of professionally in a... So what's it like? What's it like to hit the road with them? They're still not a big act necessarily. I mean, they're, they're getting good critical reviews, but commercially they haven't quite broken out yet. So it isn't like you're traveling in any kind of really high style, right? At that point, it's probably still the GTO. Yeah, if you call John Oates' yellow GTO high style, then it was. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, yeah, I think we traveled for, by van, but I remember I remember Oates' GTO and, uh, you know, and Tommy Matola, you know, us sending Tommy Matolo out for sandwiches. Amazing. And then you, you begin, there's a couple of, of uh, live radio recordings out at WLIR, I believe, in Long Island uh, at Ultrasonic Sound Studios. They would do these really great, high-quality recordings. You play on that session with the guys, I believe, to help promote the record, right? Yep, I, I remember very well the Ultrasonic uh, session. I have actually have the original tapes from that, and I've heard them online and, and uh you know, I remember that show very well. It was just like an in-studio. I think there was a small audience and it was an in-studio recording. And it was a, a pretty good recording of, you know, one of the few kind of that actually right. ar- archive that time period. Because if you actually check it out, there's not many um, archived representations, either pictorially or sonically of that time period. No, there's not much at all. And, and then from this point, obviously, after the, uh, the, the under-documented um, Abandoned Luncheonette tour, then it's time for the next Hall & Oates record. Now, while you're on the road, are you working out new music with them in preparation for what becomes the album War Babies, produced by Todd Rundgren? Yeah, so, so getting back to the Abandoned Luncheonette tour, what, what my memories of that tour that were specifically, uh, you know, memorable and exciting for me is that we toured with different groups that were, you know, amazing groups uh, in my, you know, earlier childhood, which would have been the Bee Gees. Mm-hmm. Um, we did, a, you know, at least a month or a 
or two months with the Bee Gees. We did gigs with Dr. John, which were just incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, and I just always remember, you know, waiting to get off our set so that I could watch, you know, Dr. John and the band play all the second line stuff. And, you know, those were incredible, me- memorable times. And our jam sessions at Richards in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, and during that time period, in those jam sessions, we were... Uh, working on the conception of War Babies because Daryl and John were writing the record, a a lot of it on the road when we were there. So uh, is it a star? I can specifically remember being in Atlanta in a hotel room and I'd have my drum pads with me and Oates had his guitar and Daryl had his Wurlitzer and we would be sitting in the hotel room going over Is It a Star um, and playing it in the hotel room and working on those songs as we were on the road uh, during that uh, abandoned lunch and that tour. So I specifically remember developing that material while we were on the road uh, doing the abandoned lunch and that tour. Were you recording any of that stuff on the road, Willie? Um, I don't believe so. I don't think we did any any recordings on the road. I, I think it was just assembling of ideas. Mm-hmm. But you would record jam sessions of things once in a while, right? Yeah, I, ha- I have... Uh, uh, a box of, of tapes at home of, uh, I had a Nakamichi recorder in those days, your cassette player was probably the size of your car. And so I had a Nakamichi player that I, I lugged around with me everywhere, which it was a high quality recorder. And when we did our jam sessions and, and played a lot, I always kind of documented everything because I was always studying my playing because it's one thing to play and listen to yourself play, but you, it's another whole experience to listen to yourself playing as a listener. Right. And, and you really learn a lot about, uh, you know, how you play and what you should and what you shouldn't play. And so I would always study, study those tapes. Well, Willie, you've mentioned this. We, you and I have talked about this offline before, and I think you and I have a project ahead of us at some point to start going through those tapes, to start cataloging them, digitizing them, because I, I think you've probably got some treasure in there. And uh, I think it would be fun if you're still up for that. I think we should make that a project, uh, especially now we've got some extra time on our hands to go through these things and, and really create a, a sonic document of what you did back then. Yeah, I'd love to do that. I, I, I could use the discipline, Chris. We'll do it. All right, well, we're going to do that. <laughs> well, so, so you're building War Babies, and then you come back to New York, back to a studio called The Secret Sound, and it's time to begin working on this uh, record with a guy named Todd Rundgren, who you've not met before, right? No, I had never met him, and it was done at a, a, a little studio, which was a kind of a famous studio called Secret Sound, which was right. actually owned by uh, departed Moogie Klingman. I think Moogie and... Todd were co-owners of the studio mm-hmm. in some way. And I and I kind of remember the studio was small and it was, I forget where it was, it was kind of like down, downtown. It was, I think, on 20, either 20th Street or 21st Street, kind of. It wasn't, um, it wasn't very far downtown, near right. Avenue or something, but I remember going upstairs and the studio was there. And um, that w- I had never met Todd before. I had seen Todd. Uh, prior to that, I believe, because I, w- I was into the Something Anything record, and I was initially inspired by Todd because when I heard Something Anything, I was A, inspired by his pop sensibility mm-hmm. and songwriting ability, and B, I was inspired by the fact that he played uh, the instruments himself, the drums, the you know piano, the bass, the guitar. So you went to see him play live before that? And I did. I, I saw him at Carnegie Hall. Huh. On my own, I just went one 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 evening and I watched the show and I thought, well, that that guy's wacky. He was <laughs> running, you know. This is Carnegie Hall and he's not paying reverence to Carnegie Hall. 
<laughs> he, um, what's he like when you get into a working situation on War Babies? How does he strike you as a producer, as a collaborator? What's that like? Um, well, you, you know, it was my first introduction uh, to a producer because, that, that, as I said, it was the first record that I had ever made. So that whole entire experience um, for me was, um, was new. I had never really been in a recording studio. I had never worked with a producer, and I had never made a record. So the whole uh, event was new and and kind of overwhelming to me. I, I, you know, I had my musical talent, and I knew what I wanted to do and needed to do, and 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 was prepared to do musically. But you know, all the other surrounding aspects of recording, which are being in that environment, which has the pressures of you know coming up with good takes, um, being in a, in a room of people that you don't know and, and all their different personalities. And so my, if I think back, my sensibility was just pretty much that Todd was kind of directing, uh, you know, the, the format of how the songs were, were to be played and, and taking care of the technical aspects because he was not only a producer, but an engineer. So he was also getting drum sounds and working on the sounds of the record and the, in the arrangements of the record. And, um, but he wasn't that communicative in the sense that, uh, that he was super friendly or, uh, you know, connectable. He just was doing his job. And so there wasn't too much, you know, direct communication with him, with me. Well, we're going to take a quick break. I mean, obviously, War Babies comes out. It is, it is a very dramatic uh, creative turn for Daryl Hall and John Oates. And it actually leads to your next move in your career as well, which we're going to get to right after this commercial break. I'm percepting my special guest today is Willie Wilcox, legendary drummer from Hall and Oates. As you're hearing Todd Rundgren and many of the things, we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Chris Epting will be releasing the third edition of his best-selling baseball travel Bible, Roadside Baseball, in June 2019. Academy Award-nominated director Ken Burns said about Roadside Baseball, What a wonderful book. All the stations of the cross of our national pastime are here, big and small, telling and frivolous. I can imagine this book in the glove compartment of every true fan's car. A handy reference to this beloved game, no matter where in the country you are. The new edition features hundreds of new places to discover, more rare photos, stories, and trivia. It's everything you need to plan the baseball road trip of your dreams. Roadside Baseball, coming this June. Available for pre-order right now on Amazon.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. You are listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. 
Thank you for joining me again. My guest today is the one and only Willie Wilcox. Willie, where we left everybody was you're doing uh, the War Baby sessions at the Secret Sound in New York City with Todd Rundgren at the controls. Um, the record's done, but then you're you're kind of looking for a, a different route after touring with Hall and & Oates and doing this record. You get bitten by kind of a new creative bug. What happens for you just as you're finished with the sessions? Um, so after we uh, finished our... Um War Babies tour, which, as as you mentioned, was a, a kind of a huge departure for Hall and Oates because, you know, their first record, Whole Oats, was you know a, a, a much more not country but um, folky right kind of duo, some beautiful songs, but a duo, a folky kind of duo, and then they started to get into their soulful um, element. With She's Gone was really the precursor of who they would really become, right? Exactly. And and um, and of course their harmonies and vocals would uh, would sustain throughout their career, um, but the War Babies was such a departure because during the War Babies time period, Daryl was enamored with um, uh, uh, what was the uh, I forget the name of the that uh, artist, but it, but he was very enamored with and, and influenced by this artist that that kind of led us into the Bowie esque style. Uh, music and oh Robert Fripp and so Daryl was super into Robert Fripp and so uh, Daryl's kind of soulful writing um, kind of merged with the you know Frippism and came up with this War Babies uh, style which was actually very unique you know from a artistic and musical mm-hmm. perspective it was very 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 unique and we finished we did our tour I, people just didn't know what to expect well, you were touring, didn't you? Toured with Lou Reed for a while. Yeah, we played the Capitol Theater with Lou Reed, and I remember, I remember thinking that was a really strange bill because Lou Reed's music was tremendously different than, than who we were as Hall and Oates and War Babies. And the review, if you read the reviews of those shows back then, people were very startled because all of a sudden now the soulful sound has become very metallic, very progressive, um, very experimental. I mean, I, I love the War Babies record, but I understand why commercially it was a bit of a head fake for a lot of people. And the tour, uh, you know, and, and the band, you added some members to the band as well, right? The band grew. You had some different players in there to help capture the bigness of the sound. Yep, we had different players because stylistically it was, you know, kind of a different musical endeavor. And uh, one of those people was Don York, who was the keyboard player. Uh He was uh, a jazz player. He played synths and uh, he was an orchestrator, too. So he was a very accomplished musician. And so to segue into my next project, um, I went, uh, Bette Midler was auditioning for her show, Clams on the Half Shell, that she was going to uh, be producing for Broadway. And Don York ended up being the uh, musical director for Bette Midler. And so, once again, grabbed my stick bag and my my favorite bass drum pedal and uh, my cymbals, and I headed down to another rehearsal studio and sat in a chair and watched another group of drummers play to get a gig because that's what we did back in those days and um uh i remember bet was sitting next to me uh specifically uh as the guys were go- running through the music bet was sitting next to me and i was sitting there and i remember remember saying to her i said you know bet i really actually like your singing it's you know i really think it's soulful and and 
I really can't, I connect with your you, how you sing stylistically. And she goes, oh, thank thank you very much. But I didn't know her. She didn't know me. But you know, I just was kind of connecting mm-hmm. with her because I did. That was that was never known as an incredible vocalist, right? But but that was an, an incredible expressionist. She right. could sing a ballad and make you cry, not 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 from uh, her ability. Her, her vocal ability and eloquence as, a, as an accomplished vocalist, but her ability to emote. So anyway, um, Don York was the director. So I played the, my uh, songs. I can't remember what I played. And of course, Lionel Hampton was also a part of that show. And he, and he played his famous uh, Hamps Boogie in his song. So um, I got the gig. Uh, long story short, and we headed to the Empire Theater in uh, in Philly for a three a three week run, and we kind of did that prior to opening in uh, New York City, and we did our three weeks there, and then we trans uh, went over to the Minskoff Theater mm-hmm. on Broadway in New York City, and and the show opened, and I did about three months uh, with Bet. And then you hear about a gig in, in Todd Rundgren's Utopia opening up. Yeah, so John uh, Siegler, the bass player with uh, Todd at that time, and I were friends, and John had connected with me and said, hey, I would love for you to be in Utopia. And I said, hey, well, that, that sounds great. I like, you know, I like the music, and I, I, I think that the, the band has a lot to offer for an instrumentalist at that point. That's what I was mostly as a drummer, right, an instrumentalist. And so... Um, uh, that's what uh, the fu- funny little backstory though on the Bette Midler just to finish up there is I remember um, that everybody wore tuxedos in the band and I hated that I, I couldn't stand wearing a tuxedo so I had to go to Bette and get permission to wear my tuxedo t-shirt <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I was always just a little bit different and a little bit rebellious and I got, she said, sure, if you want to wear a t-shirt, you can. But on stage, it looked exactly like a tuxedo. But when I played, I just didn't feel comfortable wearing a tuxedo. Right, right. It was, you know, it was like, it was like wearing a bulletproof vest while you're, you're, you're playing. It was horrible. So anyway, I got that permission. But anyway, back to, to, uh, to a Utopia, John had asked me to, um, to join the band. Not so what, it wasn't an audition process like the other ones. This no. was a, a straight up offer. This was a straight up offer and Todd wasn't involved in the offer. It was really a uh, Siegler that mm-hmm. was making the offer and, and Todd just went along with it. And so I ended up kind of uh, rehearsing with Utopia while with I Todd. was doing the Bette Midler show. We did about six hours a day with Utopia starting to go over the, the, I guess the first Utopia record. Right. Um, and uh, and then I was playing Bet's shows at nighttime. However, after about three months of that, I was exhausted because, you know, even as much energy as I had, it was too much for me to rehearse six hours a day and then um, and then go and do Bet's show every night. It just got to be too much. And I one night I had to go back and tell Bet I had to say, you know, I, I just can't do this anymore. I, I love playing with you, but, um, you know, I've got this other uh, uh, opportunity to join Utopia and I, I, it would be great for my career. And, and I just don't feel that I can, you know, continue to do this. And she said, no, that's great. And we had a very great relationship and, you know, we, we were friends. And so um, I moved on and started my, my, you know, 15 year run with Utopia and Todd. 
when you join Utopia, there's a first show. You're rehearsing, obviously. Todd is there as well, right? It's a full band. Yep, full band. And, and then yeah, by the way, that full band was pretty full because it was uh, two keyboard players. You know, uh, Ralph Shuckett, Moogie mm-hmm. Klingman. No, three. And Roger, Roger Powell. Roger's in there already, right? Yeah, Roger's in there. And then it's John Siegler on bass, Todd Rundgren on guitar, and then myself on drums. So it's a huge band. And you and, take a, a helicopter out to play your very first show out in Ohio, right? I think it's the summer of 75. Yep. And you, you get the call and this is it. And and what's that like to join to join that traveling circus after what you've been through at this point? Well, it's another, you know, kind of big step in my career because it's a it's a step up in terms of uh now I'm the member of a band. I'm not a, a particularly a side man in, you know, playing for Bette Midler. Um, I, I'm, you know, a part of a band. You're part of a band. You would have also probably, I think the, the initiation sessions for Todd's album, um, you were probably involved in that as well, right before I had done a record uh, called initiation. And and so I played on, um, death of rock and roll that uh, Todd had brought me in for that record. Mm -hmm. And uh, Rick Derringer actually played bass on that one. And, and I think the original drummer for Utopia, Kevin Elman, played drums as well. I think that was a double drum right. uh, song, if I, re- if I recall. And so I had made one recording with Todd, The Death of Rock and Roll, and then uh, we did this gig. And so, well, it was the first, my first night. And my first night was like, you know, 20,000 people. And there were so many people that we had to take a helicopter because we couldn't drive in. Wow. And, and I got dropped into a, a situation where I was fulfilling a previous drum chair. So I had, you know, to, you know, play well enough because I would be, it would be a comparative situation to start off with number one, number two, it would be my first actual night with this band. And number three, I'm playing in front of 20,000 people, which I've never done. And number four, I took a helicopter, which I never did. So, so the, the whole thing was kind of overwhelming and, and stressful, but at the same time, you know, I was always confident because I music was my life and I, that's all I spent my time doing. And I, and I understood it very well. So I was confident in what I did, but it, I, you know, the, the, the things that surround what you end up doing, take you into places that you've never been. And that was all very new, but it was super exciting. Well, at that point through the rest of 75, um, you tour pretty extensively with Todd Rundgren's Utopia toward the end of that year. Um, there's some shakeups in the band and it shrinks down a little bit. You lose a couple of keyboard players. I believe Luther Vandross and a couple of other background singers come in to help kind of flesh out the sound. And then by the end of 75, um, you're actually, or actually beginning with 1976, you, you're in need of a bass player. Now you're, everyone's basically left. It's yourself, Roger Powell, Ton Rundgren, and you need a bass player. And so you find this young kid from Staten Island named Kasim Sultan who comes in. And, and that's really for a lot of Utopia fans in, in early 1976, it forms sort of the nucleus of the band that most people are familiar with, uh, both commercially and critically, is the band that really did the most in terms of, of being Utopia, right? So this starts really another phase for you as, as part of a band now where the responsibilities are going to be divvied up a little bit differently, right? In, the, in this new version of Utopia, in 76 you're all going to be doing a little bit more than before right yeah so um when john siegler left the band we had to replace uh john with a new bass player as you mentioned and so we had a uh an opportunity to listen to Cass. and as a young kid he came up and 
played and and when he came into the band as you mentioned the band then really became a band because before that it was kind of Todd Rundgren's you know experiments mm-hmm. into fusion and and kind of Todd transitioning himself as a solo artist into a band scenario as well so for everybody it was kind of a new experience and so um we all started to assume uh other other than our primary roles of drums, bass, guitar, and um, keyboards, we also started to assume the roles of production during the making of the records mm-hmm. and also songwriting and also singing. So everybody started singing uh, lead vocals, background vocals. Everybody started contributing music to the uh, assembly process of all the songs mm-hmm. and we did most of the recording. Todd had a, a, a place up in Mink Hollow, it was called, and he had a, a, a guest house down below the main house, which really was a, just a small little, you know, it must have been a thousand square foot space. And upstairs, there was a control room with a little window in it, and every, all the equipment was jammed up there, a 24-track machine, mixing console, uh, all the EQs which were, you know, slotted above the mixing console. There, were, there was a fair light, a drum machine, and a bed. And we would all go up there and, and we would did all, all our background vocals were done up there around the microphone so Todd could reach over to the 24-track machine and punch us in and out as we were doing all the background vocals for all the records. And then we would uh, play our tracks down in the main room and... Uh, that's where we where we did all our recording and the entire you know kind of utopia band process started to to take shape you had the, obviously the first record you all do together as a unit um will you play on a record called faithful by a solo record by todd rungren which john siegler's on but then when chasm comes in the first album you do together is the raw record um first record is utopia and i think you all played on steve hillage's record as well but with with raw from a touring perspective things changed as well because you you, you uh introduced to the world a massive pyramid sphinx stage situation you know major production which was a big thing for you as well right you had never played within that kind of you know touring production right no it was a huge production i forget i think we had five tractor trailers and to to cart this thing around and we took our record advance that i I specifically remember in in us agonizing over the fact that we were spending a quarter of a million dollars on a gigantic pyramid with a sphinx and um, that I actually started working on the motorcycle drum set for that for that tour as well, uh, which was you know a whole crazy process where we had a motorcycle frame and then Rick Downey, who was our, also our lighting guy at that time, worked with me extensively on trying to come up with the mechanics to put the bass drum pedal beater way up in the front of the motorcycle, but my foot was way behind, but it was run on an extended chain. And I used all synthesized drum pads and I had gone to Europe to do drum sample uh, uh, fulfillment for all those drum pads so that they sounded like full big drums and the thing spun around on a giant motor. And I did a, a drum solo surrounded by a waterfall that was on the pyramid. So, and Todd would scale the pyramid during his solo. Uh, the water would surround me when I did my solo uh, there was fire, there was wind machines. And so did was, you have the, but you, did you have the cycle set up for that tour? Uh, yeah. 
Oh, I didn't realize that. I thought that I thought I know the motorcycle uh, came also later on the Adventures in Utopia tour as well, right? Yep, I I started it with Raw and I and I used it later as well. So we did both, but and I also played acoustic drums with in Raw too because there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, you know photos and, uh, and and videos of me playing the acoustic drums during the the Raw tour. Interesting. I didn't know you had. Yeah, the, the motorcycle setup was, uh, was it's kind of legendary, not just among drummers, but any fans who saw it. I saw it on the Adventures Tour because it was it was really unique. It was a lot of fun to watch. Uh, and those tours, did you enjoy that kind of production? I mean, what was it like for you? What were the challenges of, of playing within that kind of setup? Well, the challenges for the, the pyramid setup were that with the wind machines and the fog machines <laughs> and water <laughs> and water is that all the elements were all the elements and you'd slip on the, <laughs> on, on the surface. Um, it, it was a little bit dangerous actually. And there was lasers that came out of the Sphinx eyes and it was a time period where concerts were, you know, huge events but it, what, what, listen what, there's what, footage what, out there the fact that todd rungan would scale that pyramid which was like 20 or 30 feet and literally flip off of it holding a bungee cable each night i i don't think you could do it today yet he was doing that every single night and, and with his guitar on <laughs> it you know i think you're all kind of risking life and limb out there but you did it and you know it's there's when you mentioned the water and the slipping there's obviously some fun kind of spinal tap stuff about that but it still it did did raise the bar i think for a lot of other arena acts in terms of what was expected by fans back then and and what you had to do to put on a show yeah what well, was an interesting interesting production it also limited the places that we could play because the pyramid was so big right it could only go in certain venues <laughs> There was one time I remember Todd explained to me once that there was a place where you did get it in there, but the pyramid was taller than the proscenium arch so that when he made it to the top, you couldn't even see him. You You could could see him like his ankles. So, listen, well, we're going to take another quick break. Well, when we come back, I want to talk about um, what happens the rest of your time in, in Utopia. You guys squeeze a lot of music into, into 10 years or so, some really memorable albums and experiences, and also opportunities to play on things like Bat Out of Hell and some other things that Todd's working on. We'll get to that in a minute. I'm Chris Epstein. My guest today is Willie Wilcox, legendary drummer. We'll be right back on The Moment after this. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Chris Epting will be releasing the third edition of his best-selling baseball travel Bible, Roadside Baseball, in June 2019. Academy Award-nominated director Ken Burns said about Roadside Baseball, What a wonderful book. All the stations of the cross of our national pastime are here, big and small, telling and frivolous. I can imagine this book in the glove compartment of every true fan's car. A handy reference to this beloved game, no matter where in the country you are. The new edition features hundreds of new places to discover, more rare photos, stories, and trivia. It's everything you need to plan the baseball road trip of your dreams. Roadside Baseball, coming this June. Available for pre-order right now on Amazon.com. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, 
philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thoughts, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at ChrisEpting.com. That's Chris at ChrisEpting.com. Now, back to The Moment. Willie Wilcox is my guest today. Willie, I don't know, man, this time's flying by. We're going to have to have you back because I feel like we're not scratching the surface and there's just so much to talk about. We were just finished talking about the raw, the infamous raw tour. Not infamous. I mean, it was infamous on one level, I guess. But as, a, as the drummer in Utopia, from there, um, you guys released some some amazing records. You get to go play on Bat Out of Hell when Todd's producing the first Meatloaf record in 1977. That had to be a fun experience, huh? Yeah, well, it was uh, very unexpected because um, uh, they had already cut a lot of the record, and I came in to do three songs for that. Two uh, uh, was uh, uh, for crying out loud, all revved up, and two out of three ain't bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason that they brought me in was that they two out of three ain't bad was a, a really slow ballad. It became a number eleven record in the on the top Billboard charts. And but it was super, super slow. And one of the hardest things there are to do as a drummer is to play slowly. Funny mm-hmm. enough, you know, everybody thinks, wow, it's really hard to play that fast. But no, it's really hard to play that slow because there's so much space between mm-hmm. every beat and to make it feel good and exciting at a slow tempo is a huge challenge. So that's why I was brought in. And then I ended up playing a fast song called All Revved Up and Nowhere to Go. But um yeah, it was, that was a, uh, and, you know, we, we didn't know, I didn't know who Meatloaf was. And to me, it was just a, a, a little gig. Um, the, actually, we did the, uh, for crying out loud, which was the big ballad. I remember doing that in New York City and that was cut at a, at a studio. I forget the name of the studio, but the guys from the Philharmonic Orchestra were playing on that session live. Wow. And, and I remember showing up. Um, it's like, oh, yeah, we're just playing on this song. There's string players. Okay, great. I don't know who they are. And I go in and I've got three drumsticks. I don't bring a stick bag. I just bring three plain sticks in my hand. And I show up and we do a run through uh, for the song one time just to, to make sure we know the arrangement. And as I do that, I break two of my three sticks. <laughs> and there's a percussionist on the, on the session. And I, I got to say to him, Hey man, I don't have any more sticks. You got a stick? And, <laughs> and I remember playing that song with two odd sized sticks. Just and I'm that that's how you know flippant I was at that time. I was just you know you're young and you just like hey whatever just do this. Well, at that time, um, Todd's also maintaining his solo career. He does uh, a series of live shows in early 1978 for an album called live album called Back to the Bars. You play on those. Um, it, he does Herman and Mancalo on his own. Is it weird at that point to be a part of the band yet also have to sort of 
pause occasionally while Todd did his solo stuff. I always wondered about that. Where you're a working band, you guys are touring a lot, you're making great records and sort of, you know, building a commercial following. But then at various points, it becomes kind of circumvented by Todd's solo career. Was that a kind of an awkward juggler or was it just the way it was and was it okay? Um, it was the way that it was. It wasn't okay, but it was the way that it was. Mm-hmm. So whenever you're working with somebody and and you're in the situation where you're economically dependent, then you do what you have to do be, because you're economically dependent. And so Todd had the ability to go off and do something else economically that would work for him and also something artistically. And during that time period, we were waiting. So as a band, it's distracting. Yeah. Uh, I think as a brand, it's distracting. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't something that any of us were enamored with, but something that we all had to, to, to live with. Would you do, I remember when you were doing the back of the bars, uh, live sessions, I think that's the point where Roger Powell was off and, and toured with David Bowie for a while. Would you find other things in between if possible? Or I mean, yes, what was that? Well, since I had gotten, um, much more involved in songwriting with the utopia projects, um, I started pursuing uh, writing uh, deals. So I had a Warner Brothers writing deal on Screen Gems, and I was writing with other artists at the same Mm -hmm. time, many other artists. I wrote with Luther Vandross, and I wrote with the Pointer Sisters and Natalie Cole and Jennifer Holliday. And I had a hit record with Stacey Q, number one dance record. And I wrote with Kylie Minogue later on. But Mm -hmm. I, I had got... I that was my other outlet was writing. And that writing kind of led me into other paths, which kind of are concurrent with my, my most recent life. But um, those were the kinds of, of things that I was pursuing at that time. I wasn't pursuing doing a solo record, but I love songwriting. So that's, mm-hmm. that's what I would do during that time period. Funny enough, by the way, during that tour that you mentioned that Todd did the solo tour back to the bars, um, we actually got the Daryl and John actually sat in yeah, at the Roxy. Um, at the Roxy at one of our gigs. And I got to play She's Gone with my buddies again. And I remember <laughs> Daryl remember Daryl turning around as we were playing the song and he said, you still remember? <laughs> <laughs> Willie, it, uh, in the early 80s is another kind of little shakeup in the band. Kasim Sultan departs to go pursue his solo career and you need a bass player. And well, what happens from that point? How do you well, go about filling that slot? Well, um, also, I've always been a, a big lover of being in tropical areas and being by oceans. So during that time period, I moved down to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, because it was only a two hour, 20 minute flight to New York. Mm-hmm. And I, Kasim Sultan was living in Staten Island. And then we would drive up to Woodstock. So I figured, well, if Cass has to drive from New York to Woodstock, I can fly from Fort Lauderdale to New York, meet Cass in New York and drive to Woodstock. Mm-hmm. What's the difference? And then I get to live in a beautiful home in Fort Lauderdale and I get to be by the ocean in, in, in a tropical area, which I love. So I did that um, for about five years. During that time period, uh, there was a recording studio called New River Studios, which just happened to be about, I don't know, five blocks from my home. And I knew one of the engineers over there, right? And he said, hey, Willie, why don't you come over to the studio? He said, because... Uh, there's a bass player named Jocko Pistorius who just lives in the next town. And I want you to meet Jocko and you guys should come and play together. And I said, sure, I know who Jocko is. So um, I went over to the studio and we did a jam session um, with a guitarist, 
myself and Jocko, which they actually recorded. And then Jocko and I started to become friends because we lived in the same area. Mm-hmm. And so we would be jamming and Jocko would come over to my house and eat and hang out. And, you know, I always remember how casual he was because he would uh, never have a bass case. Like most musicians take pride in taking care of their their instruments like they're their children, like they're newborn babies, right? And they carefully put them into their cases and with with the felt lining and close them up and carry them with, with care because they're so fragile. Jocko would just grab the bass by the neck, throw it over his shoulder and be walking out the door, <laughs> smack it into the doorway. And as if he didn't care because he didn't really care. Um, and we used to go up to his house all the time. Jocko would uh, say, Willie, come on up to the house. I want to show you all, all my, I got drum stuff up there and he had congas and pianos and he would play me his solo records. And he was a very accomplished uh, pianist. And then we would go out at nighttime and jam at the clubs and say, hey, let's go over and jam. And I remember one night going with Jocko to this club and we walked in. He says, Willie, let's sit in. I said, okay. So we're standing there watching the band and I was going to wait till the song was over. And then Jocko and I were going to go up and play, but no, that wasn't Jocko's style. Jocko's style was, Oh, I'm going to sit in and I'm going to sit in right now. And so as the band is playing, Jocko walks up to the stage, walks over to the bass player while the bass player is playing and whispers in his ear. And you see the bass player take off his bass while he's playing and Jocko put the bass on and finished the song. And by the way, they're playing a jazz song and he starts playing Jimi Hendrix licks during the song <laughs> incredibly. And it was just, you know, it was just the style of Jocko. He was just a, a completely incredibly free spirit. So um, due to the fact that Casim had left the band, I said to Jocko, I said, hey, Jocko, you know, I'm in this band called Utopia. And, and you know, I played him some of the songs and I said, you know, I would love to have you play because it's kind of has some fusion elements to it. And Jocko listened to me and he said, well, Willie said, man, I love playing with you. He said, but I don't want to do a a commercial situation like that because I've got integrity integrity, and I don't want to sell out. So I can't, I'm not interested in doing it. Wow, but Jocko, but, but there was a, there was a shot that Jocko Pistorius could have been a member of Utopia for a moment. Well, there it was in my mind. There was amazing, Willie. From that point, Utopia breaks up in I think 1985. Uh, you're there have been you know fairly well documented um, stories about how the end came down. The record business is changing, obviously a lot at that point. You guys are working on an album called POV, and there's some friction in the studio, right, between directionally where you want to take some things and where Todd wants to take some things. Is that right? Yeah. So. Um all the time that we were making these records, we're all we're all uh, involved in participating in the production of the records. And I wanted to get a production credit because, hey, after all, I'm doing the work, number one. And number two, I think that since everybody is contributing, it should be everybody should be, um, you know, appreciated mm-hmm. for the work that they're doing for the band. It's not just Todd Rundgren. There's four guys in this band and they're all contributing, you know, saying that you're contributing equally just doesn't exist because there is no equal because in making songs and records and producing and being creative, it's a group process. It's not an individual process. And the, the group is really a sum of the parts. It's not a, right. and so um, 
I felt that it was just time that the, the band started being recognized for all the hard work that, that the band had been doing for all those years. And number one, so that was uh, from a, uh, a kind of a, not a, not a business perspective, but really a partic- participatory perspective. Um, from a creative perspective, in that time period in music, Madonna was coming out and, and uh, there was dance records and there were electronics and synths and prints and, and all these elements and, and influence in, in music were starting to change. And it wasn't about rock bands and it wasn't about new wave music. It was about new kinds of music and, and, and new techniques. And I was very much involved in programming drum machines and synths and I, st- I was writing a lot of the Utopia records. In fact, a lot of the POV record, I, I produced a lot of the music that was on that record. And a lot of it was conceived with a drum machine and a synthesizer mm-hmm. simply because, not because I just wanted to, to do a drum machine and a synthesizer, but you have to understand the process. If you're a drummer and you're in a studio with a bass player, a guitar player, and a keyboard player, and you're working on coming up with ideas for a song, you don't have any harmonic capability when you're a drummer because you're sitting at a drum set and you're only playing rhythm. So you can't contribute to the chord changes. You can't contribute to the melodies because Mm -hmm. it's just physically not possible. The advent of those uh, technologies enabled me to bring in things and do things that I just couldn't do as a drummer or I couldn't participate in with the group. So I would do those things on my own. So I wasn't just simply driving the new sound. I was also driving the technique of being able to express myself musically as a a compositional guy. Right. Um, So I brought those things in. However, a lot of those things became part of what the music was. So, um, and Todd wanted the band just to be a live performance band. And I wanted to bring in other elements of the band. So that caused friction between the band. But that was okay with me because I always thought that friction was an important part of the creative process. And it's not supposed to be. Right. It's not supposed to be. It's not supposed to be friction free. Well, what happens, obviously, it's it's the last record. I mean, we only have a couple of minutes here. I would love to go into more of this. But thankfully, you came back two years ago. There was a reunion that was extremely popular and successful and and I think creatively redeeming. It was a lot lot of fans were happy, really, that everybody could sort of, you know, put aside everything and get back together uh, the way you did. Before we go, Willie, a couple of quick things. I know I'm going to come out to Vegas uh, soon. And in your garage, you've got a lot of live tapes from back of the day right a lot of utopia board tapes a lot of hollow notes jam sessions stuff we're going to go through that stuff you and me okay digitize everything and and figure out how to how to get this stuff together for people okay yeah great it would be great to to try to uh present this breadth of kind of history we're going to do it and willie in the the last 30 seconds tell people what you're doing now you've been in vegas for a while you became sort of the one of the masters of the guys who did sound design for gaming machines and i mean you really took this art form to another level as well yeah well i treated the gaming industry like the recording industry and i brought all the elements that i learned by being in, in the entertainment industry to the gaming industry and i treat making slot machine games like making hit records it it's it can be exactly the same process and i developed this you know the sound systems that that play back for the for the uh players so that they get immersive uh experiences i got a 
a chance to produce the Michael Jackson game, which was tremendously successful for, uh, for Bally Technologies. And it was in surround sound and I remixed all those records, the bass, drums, guitars, lead vocals, background vocals, um, in true surround sound. Wow. I, I have been innovating in the, uh, the gaming space and I, I continue as a senior audio director to, to work on those projects. You know, Willie, I have an idea. Let's do part two next week. We got a lot to talk about. All right. Uh, We'll wrap up right now. I'm Chris Effie. My guest has been Willie Wilcox. Thank you for listening to the moment. I really appreciate it. We'll see you back with Willie next week. See you. Thank you for taking a moment out of your busy week to join us for The Moment. Be sure to join Chris Epting for another edition every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.